Hi, I'm Linus, and welcome back to the Interintellect Hostcast. Interintellect is reinventing the art of the French salon for the 21st century. We host conversations on a wide range of topics, from technology to philosophy to art and more, in both online settings and in cities all over the world. Check out all of Interintellect's events at interintellect.com. Today, I'm joined by Robert Nemeth and Interintellect's very own Anna Gott to talk about social movements. Robert is a writer and researcher and is currently the communications officer at the CEU Democracy Institute. Starting on June 25th, Robert is beginning a 14-part salon series on social movements, covering some of the most influential trends of our time, from liberalism to anti-capitalism to the climate justice movement. You can purchase your ticket through the link below or through the Interintellect website. And now, my conversation with Robert and Anna. Hey, Robert. Really great to have you on the podcast, and welcome back again, Anna. Always great to have you here. Um, Thank you so much for letting me crush the party. Absolutely, anytime. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, great to have you. So we're having this podcast ahead of, Robert, your upcoming salon series on social movements. So really excited to talk a little bit more about that. And where I wanted to start is, is there anything new with social movements today? It always feels like everything is unprecedented, especially in the past one or two years or even the past five to 10 years. But given the long arc of history, is there anything really new under the sun? And if there is, how can we tell what's new and what's just a, a remix? Well, uh, it's a very interesting question, um, and it's difficult to answer, I would say. Yes, there are definitely some new movements, but maybe not those that you would uh, think about. For example, if you look at the the, uh, agenda of the series, uh, maybe one would say that, oh, techno-utopianism must be something really new. Actually, it isn't. If you go back to the second half of the 19th century, uh, you will find plenty of examples and um, in many different cases. So, for example, if you think about Fourier or Owen, but also about the books of of A.G. Wells, all of them can be categorized as uh, techno-utopianist thoughts. So, no, that's not something new. But these social movements or at least most of them are constantly evolving and changing. Uh, so even though they have some historical backgrounds or historical roots, quite often, often they have some something innovative, whether it will be, whether it is how they organize themselves, uh, whether they're new ideas and so on and so on. So if you dig deeper, you can always find something in the past, but most of the time something new as well. Absolutely, yeah. And in terms of just understanding kind of the ideologies operating today and what's really interesting, you know, there's there's so much content being generated, there's so much stuff going on Twitter. What do you personally look to to understand what's going on today in the most objective, conscientious way? You, one can answer this question uh, shortly or, you know, for hours. So, because it also touches upon uh, what is a reliable source when you're looking for information. And uh, this also then goes to, to media, whether you trust media, what kind of media you, you trust, whether you trust social media or whether you don't trust social media. So let's try to put it short. So... And I can say that in general, you can trust mainstream media, but that doesn't mean that you have to believe everything at face value. So mainstream media is still a source of information, but uh, if you are interested in something, in a social movement, uh, and you would like to get more information, uh, a deeper insight, then probably you have to look for other sources as well. Obviously, uh, these social movements are sources about themselves, themselves. Um, but of, co- of course, you have to apply the critique of sources uh, because 
whatever they tell about themselves is what they want to tell about themselves and what they uh, want the public to see themselves. So it's definitely important to uh, have a little bit of criticism uh, when you are uh, reading, for example, their manifestos and so on. And then you can take a look at what they actually do. Uh, you can compare their actions and their ideas and how you can compare them because then of course you, you are not able to have first-hand experience uh, about all of them so then yes you have to look into social media you have to look into video look at videos you have to again look at mainstream media and the reports about such movements what you have to do is to to know your source i, I think that's the most important uh, element so if you are aware of the possible bias of your of the source you are using, then you can get uh, a clearer picture and maybe a more objective view about what you're what you're looking for. You asked uh, specifically about, about Twitter. Maybe it's time to mention here that I'm coming from Hungary and Twitter is not really popular in Hungary. I'm using it, of course, but not as excessively as, for example, many in, in the US or, or in, in some other Western European countries. And I also think that Twitter threats are still not the best uh, sources of getting in-depth information. So if you want to have real in-depth information about uh, anything, not just about social movements, then you probably have to look for other sources as well. And uh, we were talking about uh, articles, uh, mainstream media, but we can also talk about academic articles and uh, research. So if you are really interested in uh, basically any topics, and now we're talking about social movements, you can also look for, for existing research and uh, try to find people, scholars, who dig into these movements and uh, maybe know a lot about them. And uh, usually they publish a lot. Or you can read or listen to interviews with them. If we are talking about interviews, then uh, interviews with, with leaders of these movements can also be very important sources, in-depth interviews, I mean. Uh, for example, when they talk for an hour, because then you can really go into details and, and then you as a reader can get a lot of information. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that it's, it's really important to have a, a good balanced diet of you know, different types of information. I had, had two follow-up questions from that. One is just in terms of finding signal in lots of information like in terms of being able to discriminate what's useful and what's not. Um, and of course, a lot of people will discriminate based off of what do they naturally trust or have an inclination to you know, feel like is trustworthy as kind of their, their, their first line of discrimination between what they'll spend time digging into and what they won't. Obviously, what that does is just go into confirmation bias and tend to reinforce the views that they already have. So in terms of having a good alternative discriminating lens to create a more balanced viewpoint and a better way of filtering data? Now, is it as simple as just try and be balanced with your sources politically in terms of, kind of regionally? Or is there another kind of non-obvious filter that you would try to pass data and information inflows through? You know, maybe if you only had like 30 minutes per day to really take in kind of what's what's been going on in the world like like what kind of filter would you use to to do that yeah if you have only half an hour per day to get you would get information then i would definitely say that don't rely on social media uh you will remain in your bubble so yeah it's a question of i would say media literacy because that's that's very important nowadays uh there is a plethora of information sources out there and it, it, it's difficult to select among those but you definitely have to select because you are not able to read everything but what i would suggest to get maybe a more balanced view is to read sources with a different worldview for example because you all know that most media have uh, a certain worldview if you are aware of that definitely helps you and uh, if you would like to know more about 
a certain movement and uh, you say, uh, you read, for example, a bit of left-wing media, a bit of right-wing media, and then probably you have very different information then, but it's, it's a good starting point. And then you can decide whether you are interested to uh, dig deeper into the topic, and then you can start finding more sources. But I would emphasize once again that the most important thing here is, is media literacy, that, that you consume media and at the same time know its, its limitations. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on on already on the tech utopianism question, because you could you could kind of follow the thread back all the way to Plato. Um, and I think it says so much. I mean, the longevity of these ideas says so much about what strange ingredients are needed for the wide spreading of, of, of a social movement. I think it was Neil Ferguson in Civilization who has a kind of six ingredients of revolution, and then it includes something like bad crops and a lot of students suddenly, uh, you know, still a lot of students with access to uh, education, uh, radicalized uh, uh, intelligentsia in the cities. And like, it's a really interesting way to, to look at history. So the, the inclination is there, the, the possibility is there. And then it seems to me that for an actual social movement to arise, you need these strange things in place all at the same time. You need a, a major change in society, a major shift between the classes. You need some kind of new technology that enables that. And then you need something new about how information spreads, whether that's just that now we are monotheistic and we speak the same language, or now we live in cities, or now we invented literacy, or now we invented the printing press or the radio or the television, you know. And, and so, so to me that, um, you know, that puts the whole from where do reliable news come from question, you know, it puts it into a very different angle. I do love social media as a news source. I think if used well, it gives a kind of cross-partisan criticism of each other that, that you know, not one uh, media outlet can necessarily provide. Uh, so for instance, on my Twitter, you know, there is an article that came out in the New York Times or the Washington Post or in the Guardian, and then multiple people from multiple different angles kind of dissect it. And the truth is somewhere in the middle of that dissection, and I love it. But one thing that I, two things that I would add here, one is that um, we somehow think that when we digest the media for ourselves, we need to cherry pick, right? You go to the newspaper stand in 1988, and then you pick up whatever things you want to read. Uh, but somehow we forget how to do this on social media. And we think that, oh, I'm just like this passive consumer, like Facebook will give me a feed. And then if I don't like it, I criticize Facebook. And I disagree with that. And I think that curating your own Twitter or curating your own Facebook, following people intentionally, seeking out content intentionally, even training the algorithm by just clicking and visiting things, putting people on your list, favoriting, like whatever you know, options there are on that particular type of social media, just use it. Um, I think that's very important. Be as intentional about you know, creating, as, as Robbie said, like creating your or curating your own feed as, as, as you can. Uh, or using multiple social media feeds. There are apps that enable you to kind of like thread all the different feeds together. It's really, really interesting. And the other thing is, whilst like I'm not one of those startup founders who are completely against established media, I think there is um, value to the editorial model. I think when done well, um, you know, journalists can be amazingly led by extremely knowledgeable editors, and that's good for the reader. Uh, but the the reality of mo, 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 even the, the highest quality news outlets or media outlets today um, is that their content and the quality, it varies. It's not really even. So even the best newspapers will have, you know, really questionable op-ed pieces, whilst they also have incredibly data-driven journalism about, for instance, COVID or something else. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to have uh, to put on this, um, this series is because at no other time did society change so rapidly and so deeply as at the beginning of the 20th century. And so it makes a lot of sense that the great social movements came to be 
or came into you know, being established ideologies at that time. And they still live on in how we talk and how we see ourselves and how, what we believe, how we believe, how we vet our entire epistemological model or a representational model of the world, you know, kind of contains the legacies of these ideologies. And so when you read anything on social media or when you watch anything on TV, even in movies, like these ideas live on there. They are not necessarily codified into constitutions or law, you know, of countries, but they live in our consciousness. And I do think that a well-informed public, uh, which we hope to grow through our work at Interintellect, is, you know, is a very responsible public and a very capable one. And so, you know, it's not necessarily the outlets that need to change. The consumers can change and can gain deeper understanding. And so just, you know, you look at something and you understand that, okay, this is not data-driven journalism. This is an opinion piece from somebody who seems to base their understanding of the world on anarcho-syndicalist ideas from the early 60s, which is great, but I'm not an anarcho-syndicalist. I don't have to buy into this. I can respect this opinion and maybe, you know, shift my, if I'm a libertarian capitalist, maybe it can loosen up my, or, or widen my knowledge horizon through that very different opinion. But I need to understand what I'm looking at. Otherwise, I think, you know, without literacy, the resistance or, you know, polarizing differentiation can be much more the typical um, knee-jerk reaction. Actually, what you said, it's very interesting because it's kind of inoculating your uh, your social media feeds. It's basically the, the advanced level of media literacy, I would say. So when uh, you are uh, conscious about that and uh, you really pay attention to that. So yeah, this is the, the advanced level. In general, I think as a first step, it Kind of enough if you if you are able to recognize uh, misinformation and disinformation and uh, tell them apart from uh, from fact based fact based uh, journalism, then it's already a, a very good first step. And uh, I just remembered something. Going back to your very first question, Linus, it was about whether there are new social movement. And maybe I could say that we can consider the climate justice movement a fairly new one. So it was only the in the 90s when uh, these notions uh, came into the picture and then the climate negotiations and, and climate change uh, got into the focus. So if we are talking about new social movements, this might be uh, one of the newer ones. It's still not completely new. Because environmental protection, ha of course, has, uh, has its historical roots. But uh, as a large-scale movement, I would say it's a fairly new one. Even in yeah. the 60s, no? I, I recall... Yeah, there's the, the earlier kind of environmental movements, I think, in the 70s, which were about, like, anti-pollution. Like, that's where, like, Earth Day started. And then I think in the 90s, it was, like, really tied in with, like, anti-globalism, with, like, the anti-WTO uh, stuff. Um, so I, I do think that like, the climate movement is super interesting because at certain points it was about, in some, in some cases, a, a very anti-authoritarian, some cases anti-globalist. I think today there's also still a little bit of that, but I think in, in some parts there's actually a, a little bit of a, of a degrowth Kind of movement it was even like it. a Luddite movement at some exactly, point. Exactly, yeah. Right? Which, like um, the, the the factory. Yeah, which um, I, I remember in a Jay Hall stores and uh, kind of where's where's my flying car? You know, he he kind of rails against kind of that type of environmental climate movement. Wonderful um, intern text along with him. Last yeah, year. no, that, I, I was there. It, it was amazing. I think just to synthesize kind of on both Anna and, and Robert, your point about just media literacy and kind of curation. I think the the underlying point there is to really call on individual agency that we can choose to not be passive consumers of media, that we're, we're not merely consumers, but we are curators, we are architects of understanding. And that even though we're individuals and again, the way that information is consolidated and, and spread can often seem like very much out of our control, that there's actually a much larger arena in which you know, we can actually have agency over. What, what really interests me about, um, so, so one angle that we sometimes touch upon at Interintex Salons, and I don't know if this is a taboo I'm you know, touching upon here, um, is that 
to me, a lot of the social movements or social utopias seem to carry some kind of remedy for the death of God. And they seem to have arisen, you know, at the same time when we lost the, our eschatological way out of life. Um, there's, there's some really good uh, research into how science fiction really came to be when we lost collectively life after death. Because what you have now is time travel or escaping death, staying alive forever, or putting yourself into a coma and, and going and colonizing another planet. And, and so there is something carpe diem about social movements. You know, these come often from, from kids, from students. They mingle with counterculture, with sex, with alcohol, with experimentation, with music, with parties. And I think that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's something about saying that we don't have the other life. So we have to make this one tolerable. And it's by young people who are like, no, we are not going to take over, you know, the dump that you bequeath us. We want a, a greener, better, more equal, you know, whatever that means to you, more powerful uh, adulthood. Uh, you know, where we can work and love and exist in ways that, that we find acceptable. Um, and so I, this, this is something that really, really interests me, especially because you know, if you look at how many people died in the name of social movements in the 20th century, I mean, we can literally chunk the, all of the Second World War under, under it if we want, how many people fell victim to um, social movements. It's kind of an interesting twist on the fact that they are in themselves already a response to mortality or early lives being limited. Um, but that's how human, you know, how humans are. Um, they nevertheless took their, their toll. Yeah, I, I guess maybe one way of kind of reframing that question, even, even larger kind of historical lens is social movements as the velocity of social movements as directly proportional to the amount of disruption in a society. So obviously the, the big one the past like 200 years in the West is kind of the death of God, but you know, throughout a longer view of history, whether it's you know, extreme drought or, or climate change, nomadic invaders, you know, those being the spearheading of new social movements. Uh, Robert, do you think that's, that would be like the kind of the biggest single source to explain how prominent you know, social movements and how powerful they are? Or are there other key indicators that maybe it's it's less kind of the magnitude of change, like external disruptors, but is there anything else that you would you know, point to as good things to look out for when maybe even predicting kind of the new social movements that will be coming in the future? As I understand, your question has two parts. And uh, one is about the prominence of, of a given social movement. And uh, it's also a question what we th think about prominence. So it's a prominent social movement because a lot of people join and the millions and uh, if they organize marches, then, then the streets are full and so on and so on. Or a social movement becomes prominent because it has an impact, uh, because it achieves change. Uh, you can argue, argue for, uh, for both uh, explanations. And... Uh, Sometimes uh, the more people join a movement or, or support a movement, uh, the bigger impact it will have. Sometimes it, it, can, it can happen. We can talk about the critical mass and uh, a movement reaches it, then uh, there will be uh, a response in, in, let's say, policymaking or, or, or in anything else. But yeah, I, I would say that these are the two main factors in uh, whether a social movement is, is prominent. The other question, or the other part of the question, the uh, prediction of, of movements. It's a very interesting question, again, and uh, if, if, I, if I'm thinking about it, I also have a question. What do you mean by predicting? So do you mean that something has had something happens in the society or in policymaking politics? And then uh, we can predict a social movement as a response uh, to that, or just in general, we can think about changes in society in general, in our world in general, and uh, can we start thinking about new upcoming movements or both? I think that 
obviously you know, looking to the future, there's so many different unknowns. There's so many categories of unknowns. So I think the more meaningful version of my, my question is if you, as a given, say that something occurs, let's say there's a particular war between these two countries that happen, or you just set some sort of base parameters, maybe just say, for example, if the status quo, if nothing unexpected happens um, over the next like two years, like what would you, what would be the net effect on some of the prominent social movements that you currently see, like directionally, because you can't control all of the variables. So if you pin some of the key variables about kind of geopolitics and the economy, then is there any predictive power you can draw from what you're reading on social media or in the in journalism that you can make? Or is it still too random, even if you try to control a lot of these larger geopolitical or black swan uh, events? I would say that now we live in a world when whatever happens will result in a response by, uh, by, by people. And I would even say that most of these responses have the chance to, to become movements. And it's really, it's really difficult to predict, I would say, or, or foresee what could happen. What would may, maybe help is to, to listen to sociologists and, and uh, social anthropologists who actively research society and uh, also such movements. And uh, they may be able to, to force, foreseeing is not the best word. Uh, let's use predict. So they may be able to, to predict with more accuracy what, what may happen, simply because they have the expertise, they have the, the data, maybe they see or, uh, or they know about processes in the society that uh, they are not aware of, because, simply because it's not our job to, to really look in, into, in, into these processes. So they might be able to, to predict better what may happen. And why but, sociologists, uh, um, rather than you know, other disciplines, like economists or political scientists, why do you feel like sociologists you know, maybe have the best chance, even if it's so not a good chance of you know, predicting the future? Why would you give them a, a relatively better chance? Uh, because they he's a sociologist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. Uh, <laughs> I have I have a degree in sociology, but I have never worked with sociologists. To be to be honest, uh, no, because they were more they work more directly with people. So simply that's why. So uh, a social anthropologist may spend years uh, with a com community and uh, knows this community very well. So knows its processes, knows knows what happens, can see or can predict responses that this community um, may give to, to certain changes. Simply that's why. Yeah, fair enough. I also have a question around prediction because I'm not sure I fully understand what we're trying to predict. Um, and, you know, we've just um, gone through um, two major world upheavals. Um, one was the COVID pandemic and the second one was uh, but we're still in it, the, the Ukraine war. Um, and both were really only predicted, quote unquote, by outliers and, and contrarians. And so I understand, you know, I, I'm in touch with a lot of investors and a lot of founders. Um, and journalists are trying to actually predict things. Peter um, Turchin is a wonderful uh, mathematician who came up with cryodynamics and they actually trying to mathematically model what's going to happen in which year. Um, and there is something to that, but I do think that fundamentally this way of thinking is antithetical to social movements. Social movements are normative. They are not trying to predict. Uh, predicting the future is a kind of positive take on things. And no, uh, social movements say this is the present, right? Like Marx or you know the fascists. This is the present. This is how we see the the ills of the world. And here's how we want the future to be. And so they paint a picture of how it's going to be. They com completely disregard all the collateral damage that, or they don't even know about it. 
Um, and so I think there's something interesting here to uncover, which is that we are, you know, uh, enrollment in humanities is dropping. People are going, moving toward data-driven professions. You know, there is a, you know, there seems to be a preference in the educated classes to, you know, read nonfiction and know how to count better. And we want to have a sort of positive and almost a, a, a betting take, gambling take on the world, where we, you know, seek out the oracles of business and, uh, and geopolitics, and then we place bets, and then we hope that they were right, and then we will be rich, and then we won't have to work. And I think social movements, which lurk underneath some of these um, very positive design, and I use positive to, as a kind of opposite of normative, not, not as opposite of negative, you know, this kind of fact-driven and, and data-hopeful epistemologies hide the more normative understandings of the world. Um, and I don't really think that there are, I mean, if, if there are social movements arising today, they probably arise in chat rooms around the, around the world, around the internet. Uh, but we are deeply fed and in some ways in a stasis in our understanding of movements since the 20th century. I kind of feel like the 20th century came up with these, actually they did, right? Both metaphorically and literally with these jazz songs and they have become standards. And now if you go to any bar in the world, you will hear Loverman, right? Or some version of it, right? From probably from Manila to Vancouver to, you know, um, Nairobi, it's the same jazz standards. And this is how I feel that we are the heirs of 20th century social movements. We are still playing the same songs in infinite variations. And, and it's interesting to me as a kind of hobby historian, like what was it about the 20th century that created this weird Pandora's box of stuff, cultural memes, you know, that maybe we will live off on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Right, and it happens like there was like one century in the history of Rome where all the stuff was created, and then people like lived off on it until Einstein. Right, it's not you know some things, some memes have extreme longevity, um, and still today some flat earther will come back and you know say something that was you know refuted three thousand years ago in Alexandria or two thousand years ago in Alexandria. So to me, that that is really interesting. This differentiation between and I want to see more normative and not because I want to see mass destructive social movements around me. I think actually quite few social movements and even within them, very few like sub pockets end up really destructive in very specific cases. But I would like to see more normative thinking. You have to be an optimist to have normative thinking. There is something really pessimistic about just sitting and looking at data like, oh, look, we're heading into a whatever. Yeah, well, do do something. We are not in a fully deterministic world. You know, a couple of people can change things. Um, you know, we've just seen a tiny virus change things. So why wouldn't a couple of big humans be able to uh, do it? So to me, that's, but maybe it's a little bit like with Picasso and perspective, like first you have to learn the basics. And one of the reasons why Robert and I are putting on the series is because we think that most people don't know the basics. They don't actually know they say, oh, socialism in America, blah, blah, blah. yeah, do you know what you're talking about? Like, do you actually know the history of these things and what were actual things that worked? You know, that might be, you know, I'm not a socialist, but I think it's a cool thing that 12-year-old children no longer work in factories in a lot of places. I think that's, you probably would argue that if people can choose, you know, that's, that's a good idea. Um, I think it's a good thing that, you know, um, the UK has the NHS and you can like get hospital treatment at really high level for free. I think that's great. Um, but these are not just, you know, momentary um, political agendas. These things have a history and they, at some point for a lot of people, they seem like a good idea and you have to understand what was that context and whether we still have that context. If we don't, then it's a good idea to completely rethink the validity of that you know, um, element of society. But if we still have that problem, then, you know, let's switch on the learning from history mode and actually try to do that. But you can only really do it if you understand 
what what you're talking about. I would add one more element here when we are uh, talking about the 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 prediction of the future of, of uh, certain social movements, either uh, with the existing uh, or the existing social movements or, or new upcoming ones. And uh, this is that uh, we live in a world, and we have talked about that, where uh, information flows really rapidly and uh, which can help a new, new movement, but also it can be an obstacle. And what do I mean here? So. Of course, if there's a new movement or a, a new branch of an already existing movement and uh, information about it can reach every part of the world uh, in like minutes, that certainly can, can, can help. However, there's so many information out there about so many similar or even contradicting movements, then it's also possible that this piece of information is simply lost in this noise. So now we, can, we came to the question that how could we predict whether this small piece of news or it can be a protest or, or anything else, it can be an article on, on, uh, on the internet, it's lost in the noise or creates a big impact. You should be a wizard to predict, predict that. And uh, until you cannot do that, I don't think it would be possible to, to predict what will happen to... To, to social movements. Yeah, I, I do think that, you know, looking back, you can only you know, connect the dots looking backwards. And at the same time, there's always so much contingency that because we can't actually run experiments of counterfactuals of the past, history always seems inevitable and the future always seems completely random or completely deterministic, whereas actually it's it's always somewhere in between. And I love your your point, Anna, about normative social movements. And I think the the great tension that I'm really excited for the series to really grapple with is the tension between understanding and being objective and having a positive, and a positive as the opposite of normative, having a positive understanding of what's going on, but then you know, having the courage and, and the determination to form a normative viewpoint as well. And can I just know, add really because I think sure. I think it's really, really um, interesting thing how it kind of ties back to the question of polarization. A lot of the, a lot of the problems with uh, polarized positions is not that, well, we disagree. Like, of course, we should disagree. In a democracy, you should disagree. And there should be, you know, weighted clusters around opinions. Like, that's how it works, right? But that instead of normative, a lot of these stances are just to oppose the other camp, right? I'm on the left, but I find often that, you know, the left doesn't really have a vision. There are things that, you know, we don't like, but okay, then what? And I need something that is not the past. I don't want to be a reactionary. I need something that is, you know, an image of how being left-wing in the future can look and what that will mean. So I can buy into into the vision. Um, and I think we have a huge shortage of visions these days. And maybe, you know, this is one of the possibilities here. It is because of a missing literacy of what came before. Do you think it's a, a missing literacy or maybe a, a misreading of history? Because I think the, the history of the 19th and 20th centuries and maybe going into the early 21st century, a lot of people, have read it as the failure of communism, a failure of liberalism, you know, a failure of the remnants of monotheistic religions. Um, and that actually what they're responding to is not just like not knowing history, but maybe a very pessimistic vision of history that you know, they do see these social movements having had a utopian era of having us going through a period of you know, really great possibility and optimism and having that be you know, cut down by what has happened. And I think that you know, we can go back and read history and figure out actually what went wrong and what we can actually learn from it to not get jaded and actually try and build again. But I'm not sure in terms of distributions, like how many people are 
unable to you know, have a normative vision because they don't know history versus people who don't have a normative vision because they have interpreted history in a, in a very negative way. I just very quickly uh, respond and then I will pause the mic on to, uh, to Robert. So two things here. One is definitely there is a strawman fallacy that a lot of us indulge in. Like, you know, I am Eastern European and whenever, for instance, socialism comes up, I will, of course, reach to the extreme, most extreme, craziest version of it and say, look, it doesn't work. And then if you talk to somebody from Denmark, they will look at a, a, a you know, a, a softer and more you know, reasonable version of it. And they will be like, no, it actually works because look, you know, at how you know, it actually works for us. Um, so there's that. Um, the other thing, and again, I'm informed by my background as an Eastern European, I'm a, as a triple immigrant from Eastern Europe, um, which is that, and I think this is extremely so in America today and in the UK, uh, is that there's no consensus about history, right? You don't really have, like historical revisionism is like an everyday thing right now. And you can have a totally original individual opinion on any event in history at the, at the moment. Um, so I think there is some work there to be done as well. Um, like, can we find some common understanding of the most dramatic events in our shared history and you know some media theorists will tell you that no because the internet kind of disabled consensus making um i'm not so sure i think people are generally consensus seeking uh but i will pass the mic to, uh, on to robert who is an expert at this so many things to reflect on but let's start with what uh, you said linus i really doubt that uh, liberalism has failed. I think liberalism is triumphant, but uh, I won't talk about, about it. Uh, why? About, yeah. So I will explain why uh, I think so uh, in the second salon of the series, which will be about liberalism. The other things, I'm not sure that his, we, we could reach a, a consensus of history ever. And it's not because of the internet. So even before the internet, people were polarized, but the only difference now is that whatever opinion you have, whatever worldview you have, uh, you will find your peers very quickly uh, online. That's the only difference. Maybe uh, like 40 years ago, before the internet, uh, or even 30 years ago, you may have thought that, okay, that's my opinion, but maybe no one else share, uh, shares it. Um, and then that was it. Now, whatever you think, you will find others supporting you, and then uh, you can start uh, arguing and discussing with, with others, also about history. So, but even before that, as I said, uh, historian, historians were discussing uh, with each other uh, what it happened uh, in, in academic articles and in academic journals. Uh, now it happens on Facebook and then Twitter. Um, and we are, if you're talking about, about history, you should never forget about the individual's experience. So what you also mentioned that you as an Eastern European and me as an as Eastern European as well, uh, since you're coming from the same country, um, it will always be different how we think about socialism, for example, than Western Europeans or, or Americans or, or uh, for example, Latin Americans. Um, and you could say, you could mention many other ideologies that had a different, different impact, a different history in this part of the world and in other parts of the world. And that it's, it's always very important. We had a, we had a salon a couple of days ago with Amanda Ripley, who is an author and journalist and somebody whose work greatly, greatly influenced me and in building Interns and Act at the beginning. And she, uh, she wrote this amazing essay in 2018 called Complicating the Narratives. And maybe we can add the, the YouTube link of this salon in the, in the description of the podcast. Um, and basically at some point in after 2016, she realized as a journalist that, um, you know, the how journalists in America used to cover conflict no longer worked for the, um, basically post-refugee crisis, Trump era journalism, uh, that there was like a new need uh, for how we, how we 
cover, how we explore, how we open up conflicts, and how we, uh, how you know, how 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 journalists even participates in it. It's almost like journalists have become verbal war journalists all of a sudden. You had to like understand how warfare worked before you just like go and embed yourself into the action. Um, and she very seriously started studying mediation and best practices and how you talk to a group, how you, you know, interview somebody, how you cover a topic. And one of the main rules that they came up with, which actually we still do at Interintax Salons every, every single time, is to tell your own political story. Like, okay, how did you come to believe what you believe? How did you come to vote how you vote? And, you know, when people start with that, first of all, their choices seem much less crazy, but also much less optional. It's actually very unlikely that somebody would say two right-wing parents would themselves not be more on the right. Like there, there is research to suggest that it's kind of hereditary <laughs> and as a meme in the family of, of you know, how, how you vote with a lot of exceptions, of course. And to me, that's really, really interesting. I think we should see ourselves as, as ideological and political heirs or cultural heirs of a lot of people who, you know, our parents, our grandparents, our, you know, the country where we grew up, the era that raised us. You know, we are more raised by eras than by individuals in many, many ways. Um, and understand our own, I don't want to say bias because it would be uh, minimizing what we're talking about. Understand your own, you know, the collective hallucination that you come from. Even if you left it and you woke up, it informs you in ways that, you know, greatly determine what normative takes you will have on the world or what you will see as possible even, right? How, 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 how big your leverage will seem to you, how much you will want to participate. And so to me, that's when, when I say literacy, I also mean self-literacy, like understand yourself, understand the components that make up you and your opinions. Um, they more, most likely come from early, early on and not necessarily from something that you read yesterday. So to start wrapping up, I thought that you know, it would be really great to ask you know, either of you just in terms of waking up from this, I love that phrase, collective hallucination. Is that really the project here with this series, but but also just more broadly in terms of what one might want to do with media and, and media consumption? Or is that in itself its own ideology of trying to awaken? How do you conceptualize that project if that is indeed the project and where does one go from there? Look, I think, I, I think I, as always, I have two opinions about this, okay? Uh, I always think that if you just have one opinion, you didn't do the work. Um, so one is that more knowledge is always better. And I think people should know more about more things in a way that can be absorbed into your life and your thinking and your personality. I don't believe that you know, if there is a scary thing happening in politics, you should not touch it because it will infect you. No, on the contrary. The only things that can infect you are things that you don't have detailed information about. The moment when you have detailed information, things lose the magic that you don't want there to, to be. The magic that you want there to be will be there. And I think that's very, very important. On the other hand, I really believe in, in affinity. And I think that different kinds of people will gravitate toward different types of ideologies and that's fine. I want to live in a world where within like the limits of nonviolence, people believe a wide array of different things depending on their backgrounds, their own normative hoops about the world or their personality types or the, 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 time of, the, the time it is in their lives, right? Like I, I can imagine that an 18 year old is more of an anarchist than a six year old, but maybe like, maybe not. And I, I, I do think that in this sense, you know, knowledge gives people power, but it also gives you an understanding of how many things you can choose from in a weird way. And, and I think we should be filled with hope when we look at a lot of social movements in the 20th century just because of the sheer ingeniousness and the hard work and the inventiveness and organizational skills that humans had and how much we've achieved. I want you know, women to feel that there have been heroes and heroines 
in the past hundred years who, who make our current lives possible. There's still a lot to do, but I want to give people the scope, the understanding of the scope that look, we started from nothing and here we are. So yes, everything is possible. And those people were just like you, but they didn't even have an iPhone, you know, like they were in that sense and they had shorter lives and lower levels of education. Like you're better off, like you can do even more, but it will also teach people how, how dangerous some social hallucinations can get and where do they go astray. A lot of things start like, okay things, a couple of you know students coming together and talking about stuff and then where it might go to give you kind of an internal immune system that like can log that in reality if you ever encounter it. And it will also show you the limits of how far the 20th century social movement, like we are, we've been past the baton, like, okay, they've got to that part where they've got, and now it's on us. And oh, you're not fully happy with how far the civil rights movement or feminism or social democracy got, you know, well, you know, get get active. Now that you know all of the, you know, the terminology, you know, the OGs in this, you know, what they did right, what they did wrong, you know, get active, get involved. Um, and I, I hope that, you know, learning about this stuff will be an empowering experience to people. I would only add that uh, I think I have basically two uh, goals with this series. And uh, one is that whoever will, will join the salons and uh, be there, and uh, later on we will read or hear something about anarchy, liberalism, Marxism, fascism, you can continue, you know, have maybe the, like in the cartoons, this, this lie bulb above their head that, uh, oh, I've heard about that. Ah, oh, yeah, it's this and that. And uh, probably it's maybe worse to, to read a bit more about that. Or even, you know, at once would realize that, oh, that's not uh, perfectly true what they say. And the, the other goal is that hopefully we'll have people there from all over the world. And um, what I just said a short while ago, that the individual experience is extremely important. And as Anna said, we all have our own narratives. And uh, if people from all over the world will, will gather and discuss such issues, I think it can only be good. Awesome. Thanks so much, Robert and Anna. I'm really excited for the series to start next month. And thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.